Well, you guys can turn to Psalm chapter 19. That's where we'll be today. While you're turning there, I did want to give a, a real heartfelt thank you to all of you who helped out with Grace for the City. We had over 200 volunteers from our church a couple weeks ago enter into the community to serve, to show people that the love of Christ isn't just a phrase we use, it's something that's real, that has meaning. And so well, we had people painting schools, we had people volunteering with charities around town like Hope Pregnancy Center and the Bridge Ministry. We had a lot of people hosting block parties in their neighborhood and we've heard some great stories about people encountering God for the first time at these block parties and hopefully becoming part of the family here at Grace. So if you volunteered with Grace for the City, thank you very, very much for doing that. We're really excited about what God is going to do through that. Well, this morning we get to look at Psalm 19, which I'm really glad about. We, we had this kind of competition going to see who could pick what Psalms for who's preaching this summer. Um, and so we're all rushing to get our picks in. But the deal is I control the document where it's all written down. So I got to get what I wanted. And this is what I wanted. This is one of my very favorite Psalms. C.S. Lewis said of Psalm 19, it's the greatest poem in the Psalms and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. It's a powerful, powerful psalm. But to understand it, I need to, I need to tell you a little story. Back in elementary school, I made the serious mistake of watching Jaws when I was too young to see it, and it, it terrified me. It made me very afraid. I could not sleep that night in my room because when you turn the lights off, I would suddenly begin to imagine that I was floating in the ocean. And I know that's ridiculous. Like the lights were on 30 seconds ago. I saw my room around me, but who knows what magic could have happened in those 30 seconds since. And, and so I begin to imagine that my mattress is floating in the ocean and there are sharks around me. And all of a sudden I start believing I'm feeling the mattress move and I'm starting to hear things and I'm freaked out and the lights are back on. And my parents were very gracious. They allowed me to sleep with the closet light on. And that was not enough light to keep me awake, but it was enough light that I could see I was still in my room. And what I learned on that day is that darkness drives our fears. Because darkness creates this fear of the unknown, this, this lack of comfort, because we don't know what's coming, we don't know what's around us. Whereas light dispels fear. Light gives us courage and peace. And that's exactly what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to think about light, about the ability of light to give us courage and peace and drive away our fears. That's actually why a lot of ancient cultures worshipped the sun and the moon. Because here were these objects that gave light, that drove away the darkness that they were afraid of. Well, those ancient cultures were right to celebrate the light, but they were wrong to worship the sun and the moon. Right to celebrate the light, wrong to worship it. What they should have done is worship the giver of light. And that's what Psalm 19 is all about. It is a a hymn of worship of the God who gives us light. Both literal light in his world and spiritual light in his word. Okay, and that's, that's how the psalm divides up. First half is about the light God is revealed in his world. Second half is about the light God is revealing in his word. Okay, so let's, let's look at this psalm. We'll begin with the first half about the literal light that God has given us in his world. So look with me, Psalm 19. Let's start right at the top. 
says, for the choir director, a psalm of David. And let's pause there for a moment. It's actually important to notice those little details. They are part of the scripture. And that tells us not only that David wrote it, but that what you're about to read is not like a letter like Paul would have written. It's not just a history like you'd find in the Gospels. This is an actual song. So what you were just doing a minute ago is John Mark led. That's what this, this would be the words on the PowerPoint screen if they had PowerPoint 3,000 years ago. Okay, so this is a song of worship. Verse one, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. That word heavens is a kind of churchy word, but it's actually just sky. That's all that David is talking about. When he says heavens, he's saying, when you look up, I mean, not in here where you have a roof, but go outside, look up, that's the heavens. Daytime, you're seeing the sky and the sun and clouds. Nighttime, you're seeing the moon and stars. That reveals God's glory. Okay, so the sky, the daytime sky, the nighttime sky reveal God's glory, but that's another churchy word. So what is glory? Well, the definition of the word is that glory is the revelation of God's goodness and greatness to you. Glory is the revelation of God's goodness and greatness. God is good and great whether you know that or not. But his glory is how he shares with you his goodness and greatness so that you experience it. So that you come to to know him as good and great. Glory is God sharing himself with you so that you get to know him. So here's a little analogy to make this a little easier to understand. Glory is to God as light is to the sun. Glory is to God as light is the sun. So think about the sun. Without light, you would have no way to experience the sun because it's far away, 93 million miles from you. You can't touch it. You can't walk on it. You, you could not have any experience of it except that the sun emits photons of light energy that travel 93 million miles and strike your skin and your eyes and show you its warmth, reveal to you its light. That light is how you experience the sun. So it is with the glory of God. God is transcendent. He is mighty. He is holy, holy, holy. You can't touch God. You can't walk over there and give God a hug. It doesn't work that way. You know God through his glory. That's his revelation of himself to you. Him sharing his goodness and greatness and love and joy and power and wisdom with you so that you can get to know him. So David's point is that God is revealing his goodness and greatness to you through creation and particularly through the sun and the moon. And that's a theme that's common in scripture and that David will return to a little bit later. If you look down about the middle of verse 4. David says, in them, he has placed a tent for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. It rejoices as a strong man to run his course. Its rising is from one end of the heavens and its circuit to the other end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. It was common in ancient cultures to personify the sun like this, like describe the sun like a strong man running from one horizon to another. But in most ancient cultures, they worship the sun as a god. The Bible doesn't do that. Here, the sun is not a god, it is simply a a part of creation that tells us about the one true God. It reveals to us his power. That's, That's what the sun is designed to do. It's designed to show you that you have a powerful God. So I'm going to get a little sciencey on you this morning because I like doing that. Um, the sun, in case you didn't know, it's 109 times the diameter of Earth and it is putting out at all times energy equivalent to a trillion hydrogen bombs all the time, constantly, since its inception. And the sun is just actually one of 
of a hundred billion suns in this one galaxy, of which this one galaxy is one of at least two trillion, if not more like 10 trillion galaxies in our universe, and God made them all. God made all of those massive balls of hydrogen. And when you think about the power of the sun, I mean, you can't even go outside and look at it. And you're 93 million miles away and you can't look at it, it's so powerful. You see that and it shows you, you have a powerful God and you are not nearly as powerful as him. The sun reveals the greatness of God who made countless of those and the smallness of us. So David wants us to, to understand from the sun that God is big, that he is great. And David says of the sun, there's nothing hidden from its heat. This is a lesson available to all mankind. Every person can learn about the power of God by beholding the sun. That's true even for those who are blind. They can still feel the, the radiant energy of the sun as those photons travel 93 million miles to cast heat upon them. All humans can behold God in creation. I hope that's something that that you have had a chance to see in the course of your life. That if you observe creation carefully, it will teach you things about God. Paul talks about that in the book of Romans, chapter 1. He says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Creation was actually designed by God to be a book. You open this book and, and you read about God. You, you learn about God's power. You learn about God's existence. You, you discover your God in the world he has made. So I, I've seen that happen in my own life. I'll share with you some of the, the times when God has spoken to me through his world and taught me about him. Five most important lessons I feel like I've learned from creation about God. The first came from the night sky in the Maroon Bells area of Colorado. Went hiking and we camped in this valley. And during the day, the mountains, the maroon bells, or a couple 14ers, are beautiful. They're stunning. But it's nothing compared to the nighttime. Because you're miles away from any source of artificial light. So you're actually seeing the sky as David would have seen it every night. You see just countless stars. And I, I remember looking up and just being awestruck by the number of stars. And the thought that some of the stars I'm looking at are not actually stars, right? They're whole galaxies, 100 billion stars in every little point of light that I'm seeing. And I'm looking at them with my naked eye through the atmosphere. So I'm not seeing a tenth of of the real stars that are there. You look at the night sky and it overwhelms you. uh, We've lost count. I talked to a guy after I taught this years ago who's, um, I think, with the uh, Department of Astronomy or Science at A&M. And he he said, if you're going to keep quoting the number of stars to us, you've got to recognize that's going to change every day. Because every day we're finding more. We actually have no idea how many there are. We know it's in the hundreds or thousands of trillions out there. There's just so incredibly many. So you look at all of these stars in the night sky above the maroon bells. And then you reflect on a verse in Isaiah. Chapter 40. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one of them is missing. All of those countless trillions of stars, God knows every single one of them by name and calls them forth, meaning God puts them where they're supposed to be. He sets their orbits. He sets every day for them. And I reflect on the fact that God knows all of these countless trillions of stars by name, and I can't remember the name of all the people who work at the church with me. 
I mean, that's like 60 people and I forget people. God is so much wiser than me, so much greater than me. And it's the sky above the maroon bells that proved that to me. Second lesson came to me in college. I had an incredible privilege to go with a friend scuba diving off the coast of Cozumel. And as we went scuba diving off the coast of Cozumel, I learned that we have a God who loves diversity. Because you, you go scuba diving and you go down and you see all these different corals and they're all different shapes. And they're all different colors. And I don't know what the purpose of that is. I, I don't think like green coral is better than pink coral. He just likes different corals. And then you look at the fish. And I mean, he could have created one tropical fish. He created tens of thousands of species of tropical fish. And within each species, every individual is unique. There's no two angelfish that are the same. And what I learned from that is that God doesn't love homogeneity in humans any more than he loves it in fish. He likes diversity. He likes variety, whether you're talking in the family of God, in the church, in the world. God loves diversity. Third lesson I learned from right here in Texas, watching sunsets at night. Texas sunsets, um, I've thought a lot about sunsets. They're kind of a thing for me. Um, I'm amazed at them because I can't figure out any actual function to a sunset. There's nothing that I know of that is necessary for life to function because of a sunset. So why did God make it so that light reflects through, or refracts through clouds and looks like this to our eyes? The only conclusion I can draw is because God loves beauty. Why else would you make that? God loves beauty for the sake of beauty. It doesn't need a function. It can just be beautiful. And so God creates these sunsets that are more beautiful than anything any human being has ever made. He's the greatest author. He's the greatest artist ever And not only is he the greatest, but he's the most prolific. Because if you think about it, you don't get one sunset a night. You get an infinite number. Because every sunset varies moment to moment and place to place. You drive five miles down the road, new sunset. Wait five minutes, new sunset. And recognize the sun is setting somewhere on earth at all times. So this is artwork that has been going on for all of creation. Since the inception of the earth and the sun... God has been doing art in the sky everywhere always. It's amazing. You see his love of beauty for the sake of beauty. Fourth lesson I've learned from our garden. Actually, it's more Julie's garden. She's really good at growing plants. I just kind of help a little bit here and there. I like watching what plants thrive and what plants don't. Kind of seeing how it works out. That whole survival of the fittest thing at work. Survival of the fittest has taught me that we have an incredibly wise God. He designed life in such an amazing way. It is always improving itself. The plants that are best suited to the circumstances, they thrive. Those that aren't, they die. And in that way, the species, the breed is always improving itself. Life is always getting better. It doesn't remain static. It's always evolving. That's amazing to me because think about what humans design. Cars, I like those. What car has ever improved itself? iPhones, those are nice. What iPhone has ever made itself better? No, they don't do that. Our devices decay. They get old and obsolete. God's creation, life, it is always improving, always getting better. That is the single greatest design feature ever in the history of the human race. God's a greater engineer than any of us. So you see God's wisdom displayed in survival of the fittest in the garden. Fifth and finally, 
Julie and I had the opportunity during our 10th wedding anniversary to go up to Maine and do whale watching. And the whales did all kinds of interesting things, but the most interesting was when they breached. So they come out of the water and fall back down. It's beautiful to watch, but it's fun when you're watching that and then you flip to this one verse in the book of Psalms, chapter 104. Over here is the deep wide sea, which teems with innumerable swimming creatures, living things both small and large. The ships travel there and over here swims the whale you made to play in it. Think about that for a moment. Why did God make whales? To play in the ocean. What I learned from watching whales breach is that our God loves fun. Fun for fun's sake. It doesn't have to have some great grand function. It can just be fun and God delights in that. He created a whole type of life just to play. So my son got me a, a Father's Day card earlier this week, and there were these blanks that you fill in on it, and there was this one blank, um, what I like doing best, or what I like best about my dad. And I was hoping it would be something like he loves me, or how he teaches me, or how he comforts me. Instead, it was that he plays with me. And at first, I was disappointed in that, because it felt like, well, playtime. That's kind of immature, right? It's kind of childish. And then I read this verse, and I realized, now, I think I'm the childish one here. I think Luke has it right. God loves play. God loves fun for the sake of fun. It is inherently good. How do you know? Because God created a whole type of life just to play all day in his oceans. Our God loves fun. You see that watching the whales. So there's all these lessons that God is teaching humanity about himself in the natural world. We just have to open our eyes and see these lessons from God in his world. They're speaking to us constantly. God's world is talking to us all the time. Look at verse two. Chapter 19, verse two. Day to day pours forth speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. So the world is, is constantly, from day to day, from night to night, all the time, it is speaking to us about God. It is revealing this awesome God to us to lead us to worship. And so that begs the question, if creation is speaking so powerfully all the time to all human beings about God, why aren't more of us worshiping God? Why are so many people on this planet completely oblivious to what God is doing? Well, the answer is found in the next couple verses. Look at verse 3. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth and their utterances to the end of the world. It's kind of weird couple verses. They seem to contradict each other. What David is telling us is that there's an irony here. Creation is speaking all the time, but to hear it, you've got to have the right attitude. Verse three, it's not using audible words. It's not like you can just be outside and learn about God just passively. No, you won't hear a thing if you're passive. But if you'll pay attention, if you'll really look, then you will see when it says their line has gone out, line's a bad translation, it's their voice, their words, their utterances have gone from one end of the earth to the other. You just have to pay attention to hear it. Creation is speaking to us, but we have to pay attention to hear what it's saying. And sadly, most of the human race doesn't. Most of the human race is just too busy doing life to hear what creation is saying. And that was true in David's day. It's even more true in our day because we have all of these devices to distract us, all of these beautiful screens to look at instead of the world God has made. And what's ironic is that many of us have put 
pictures of God's creation on our creations. Do we have, a, we have an iPad with the ocean on it? We have a starry sky on, an, on a Samsung galaxy. Beautiful, but you do recognize that that's not the actual ocean, right? That's not an actual starry night sky. Those are artificial representations made by man. And those man-made artificial representations will never teach us about God like the real thing will. Those devices are man-made, so they're going to teach us more about us than about God. And so these devices, as beautiful and as wonderful as they are, they have allowed the human race to replace supernatural wonder with artificial wonder. And and that's what life looks like for now. We, We fill our lives with artificial wonder rather than seeing and beholding the real thing, God's supernatural wonder displayed in his world. Now the challenge for us is that these devices shout at us, whereas creation just whispers. Usually creation is really quiet. I mean, other than like a tornado or a thunderstorm, it doesn't yell at you. It, it just whispers. It, it waits for you to pay attention. Whereas your device, it screams at you. It's beeping, vibrating, always wants your attention, new updates all the time. And so it's so easy for us to get caught up with our creations and miss God's creation. So we, we miss the sunset because we're watching the game. We miss seeing the flowers because we're scrolling Facebook. We miss hearing the song of birds in the morning because we're listening to a song in our earphones. There's nothing bad with any of these things. It's not bad to watch a game. It's not bad to go to Facebook. It's not bad to listen to music. But if that's all you do, if that's what's filled your life, then your life is shallow because you are living off of artificial wonder instead of exposing yourself to the supernatural wonder of God in his world. God wants to deepen your experience of life. He wants you to get to know him as he truly is. And so you gotta pause on the devices for a bit. You gotta turn the screens off, set them down. Go into the world and see God. See what it is saying to you about God. So it's summer, which makes it easy to apply this. Number of things that you can do. I'll just give you a few examples of things that you can do to to observe God in his creation. I think one thing, it's just a big one to me, is pay attention to a sunset. I know that's hard. It kind of comes in the evening. Maybe you're making dinner or there's a show to watch. Set it down for just a moment and go watch the sunset and maybe do it for more than just like a split second. Maybe watch it for a couple minutes and see how it changes. Like it's always shifting. It's living artwork all the time. Just observe it for a little bit. Just a little bit. Students, go up to the top floor of the parking garage. You bet, best view of all. Watch the sunset. Second idea, for those of you with pickup trucks, take your kids, go into the country. You don't have to go very far. Maybe go towards Iola or someplace kind of more out in the country. Find a nice little pull-off and get everybody in the bed of the truck at about 8 or 9 o'clock in the evening. Watch the sunset and then watch the stars come out. And just sit there and challenge your kids to count the stars. Show them how big God is. Another example for you, a lot of you are going to go on vacation. I think that's good. Many of you will go to the mountains. Many others of you will go to the beach. Whichever you go to, I want you to set aside a little bit of time to behold the bigness of God. At the beach, that means just looking at the ocean. Just just go look at the ocean a little bit and think about how big it is and then reflect on the fact that the Bible says it's not even a drop in the palm of God's hand. 
And then go look at the mountains, if you're going to the mountains, big ones, hopefully, as big as you can see. Look at them and reflect on the fact that it says in the Bible that God towers over them. And if the God was to step down onto the earth, they would be crushed under his foot. They're nothing compared to God. They're a pebble to God. Think about how big he is and how small you are. Creation is designed to teach you that. And no five-inch screen is ever going to teach you that. Okay, so get into creation this summer. Listen to what it's saying about God. So creation is revealing the light of God. God's world speaks to us about him. But David next moves to an even greater source of revelation. There's a lot of light that comes to us through this world. It says much to us about God. But there's even more light that comes from God's word. And that's where David turns next. So look with me, starting in verse 7. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true, they are righteous altogether. They are more desirable than gold, yes, and much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and keeping them there is great reward. There's something interesting that happens starting in verse 7 that you might not catch in an English translation. David only mentions God by name once before verse 7. It's in verse 1. And when he mentions God by name in verse 1, he uses the Hebrew word El, which is just in Hebrew. It's a generic word for any deity. So creation reveals God's existence to us, but it doesn't tell us who this God is. We just know he's powerful, but what particular God? God of the Bible, or is it Allah, or is it Vishnu? We, we don't know just from creation. Because creation's revelation about God is generic. Just tells us that there is a great God. We need scripture to tell us which God. And so starting in verse 7 until the end of the chapter, David begins to use a second word. When he refers to God, he calls him Yahweh. Yahweh is the personal name of God, the covenant name of God. It would be similar to if you said, hey, a man is preaching versus if you said, Blake is preaching. A man could be any man. Blake, well, that's me. So that's how these names work. So from verse seven on, David is talking about Yahweh, the personal name of God, because he's telling us that this book, it sheds better light upon us than creation does because this word, this light, helps us get to know God personally. And so the light that we get from the word is even better than the light we get from the world because it reveals God to us in specific detail. It tells us that it's not just a God, it is this God, the father of Jesus Christ, the God who led the exodus, the God who's sending his son back at the end. We get to know God in particular from his word. Now, when David talks about the word, he keeps using the phrase law because that was all he had. The law is the first five books of your Old Testament. That was David's whole Bible. He lived 3,000 years ago. But David says even just those first five books, they tell you a lot. They're incredibly useful to you. And and if you just look back over these verses, when he says that they restore the soul, that, that means they preserve your life. They help you to thrive in this life when you know this word. When it talks about making wise the simple, even the most naive person can become wise just by studying this book. 
When he says that they rejoice the heart, the idea is you spend time in this book, it will make you joyful. This is the secret source of joy in your life. When it says that they, the fear of the Lord is clean, it endures forever. That means it is always the right thing to obey God's word. That's how you fear God, by obeying what he has written. If you look down to verse 10, they are more desirable than gold, yes, and much fine gold. That's actually the big idea of 7 through 11. The word of God is the most valuable thing you own, more valuable than anything else. Why? Because it will help you through life more than anything else. If you have nothing but the word, you have everything you need. If you have everything but not the word, you don't got squat. The word of God is more valuable than anything else in your life. Okay, so what is David really trying to help us understand here? Well, I think that there's this it's kind of this tragedy. I, I don't even know how it, how it happened. Our culture, by and large, tends to think of God's word as a burden, particularly the commands of the Bible. American culture tends to think of the commands of the Bible as a burden that restricts us. It confines us. It, it prevents us from truly enjoying life. And yet David's point is the exact opposite is true. God's word, including God's commands, are not a burden. They are a blessing because they tell you how to live the best life. Do you want to live the best life now and forever? This book tells you how. God doesn't leave you in the dark guessing which way to go. He's told you exactly what choices, what beliefs, what actions, what speech will benefit you and others the most. If this world would just follow this book, the world would be an infinitely better place. This book is not a burden to us. It is a blessing to us. I like to think of this book as kind of like an instruction manual. Like you, you get a new car and you get an owner's manual with it and you open up the owner's manual and there's a whole lot of rules in it, like stuff that you got to do, including that one, you know, change oil every 5,000 miles. Well, at first that feels like a burden because, you know, it's going to cost money and it's going to take time and it's a pain. So is that a burden? No, that's actually a blessing that the engineers who designed your car wrote down to you change oil every 5,000 miles because what if you did not know that? You drove 50,000 miles without changing the oil. Well, you're buying a new car. You ruined it. It's over. Well, the Bible is your instruction manual on life. It tells you how to avoid having to go buy a new car. It helps you to know how to get the most out of life, this life and the next The Bible isn't a burden, it's an incredible blessing. The rules of God are not designed to restrict you, they are designed to bless you so that you can thrive on this earth. David puts it this way, Psalm 119, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God is the creator. It was within his right to create us and then leave us alone. Especially, I mean, we blew it in the garden. God, it totally would have been okay for God to just, hey, I'm done with you, walk away, and left us in the dark to try to figure out existence as best we could. But God is good. He is gracious. And so besides just giving us life, he gave us light. His word is the greatest light of all. It's like a lamp to lead you through life. So, so God does not want you stumbling through life in the dark, smacking your shins on the coffee tables of life. That's, that's not what he wants. He wants you to see your way through this life so that you can thrive. And so this book is his really bright light. Read this book, follow this book, and you will make it through life well. That's the big idea.
Okay, so God has revealed light to us in his world and in his word. And as we look at that light, as we spend time in his world and in his word learning about him, here's the result. End of Psalm 19, look at verse 12. David said, who can discern his errors? Acquit me of hidden faults. Also keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. Let them not rule over me. Then I will be blameless and I shall be acquitted of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. When we spend time in God's revelation, it always leads to conviction. So whether you're spending time in Colorado looking at the night sky or you're reading the book of Isaiah, it's going to lead you, it should lead you to conviction because you should see how big and great and awesome God is and how little you are, how fallen you are, how weak and needy you are. That's what it did for David. So he spent time in God's world and God's word and it led him to confess sin because he recognized, God, you're so great. You're so incredible. I'm nothing compared to you. Please forgive me for the times I've done wrong things. Forgive me for the the sins I'm not even aware of. David admits, "We're, we're so fallen. We're so sinful. We don't even know all our sin. So he confesses that to God. God, I'm so broken. I'm so sinful. Please forgive me and protect me from sin. That's what creation should do for you. It should humble you before God as you see how big and great God is and how small we are. So, So the light of God in his world and in his word led David to confess his sins and ask God for forgiveness. But David didn't know something that we do know. God had an amazing plan in store. And so a thousand years after David, God raised up one of his descendants. So David's great, 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 however many great grandson, a man named Jesus. He was not just a man, he was actually the creator in human flesh. He called this this God-man to live a perfect life and then to die in our place for our sins and rise from the dead so that we could have forgiveness as a free gift. Now, you've heard that before. That's the gospel. I think it is important on a message like Psalm 19 to just stop for a minute, think about the gospel, and, and think about what you're seeing. Who is it that took on this small human body? I mean, think about it. I mean, Jesus, probably no taller than five foot ten, confined by this body of flesh and bone that can do so little. I mean, I, I, really, I can't remember all the people who work. Human beings, we can't remember much. We can't do much. And yet the creator of the universe confined himself in this little sack of flesh and lived among us and then suffered for us and died for us so that we could be forgiven. How phenomenal is it that the creator who made trillions of galaxies by the word of his mouth took on the limitations of a human body and then suffered for us and died for us. Why? So that David's request could be fulfilled. So that forgiveness could happen. So that a righteous God could declare sinners righteous, not because we are, but because Jesus is. Because he died for us and rose from the dead, we receive forgiveness as a free gift. And all we have to say is, yes, God, I I accept that. I want that. I believe Jesus died for me and rose from the dead. So I can have forgiveness for free. Now, for those of you who have said yes to this this gift, you said yes to Jesus, you said yes to eternal life, we're going to 
close and I'm going to pray and I'm going to give you a minute during that prayer of silence. And what I'm going to ask you to do, if you've said yes to Jesus, I want you to pray for someone in your life who's still searching. To someone who doesn't yet know Jesus, they're still looking for forgiveness. They're still looking for peace. They're still looking for hope. I want you to pray for them. I want you to picture their face. I want you to say their name. I want you to pray that this week, God would open their eyes to see him in his world and in his word. I want you to pray that God would open their eyes to see that he exists and that he is good. I want you to pray for them that God would even use you to share the good news of Jesus with them this week. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you on this Father's Day that we get to celebrate the greatest father of all. We thank you for all that you've done. We praise you that you are the creator who made a good and beautiful universe to teach us so much about you. We praise you that not only have you revealed yourself in your world, but you gave us your word. You wrote down clearly for us truth so that we will know that which is true, so that we will see life as it really is, so that we will know how to live in a way that thrives and that honors you and that is good now and for eternity. Thank you that you are a God of light, but we lift up to you, Lord, people in our lives who have not yet recognized the light you are shining upon them. For one reason or another, their hearts have remained closed, their eyes sealed off to your light and your world and in your word. We pray, Lord, that you would break through the darkness. We pray that this week you would open their eyes to see your goodness and your glory in creation and in your word. We pray, Lord, right now that you would even use us to reach them with the good news of Jesus. Heavenly Father, we entrust these people to you. You declared in the book of First Timothy that you desire all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. We pray that that would happen for each of these individuals, and we pray that you might even use us. We pray, Lord, that you would shine your light on them through your world and through your word. We thank you that you, in kindness, have not left us in the dark. You've shown us the way to live, a a life that 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 thrives, that is satisfying, that is full. Help us to trust you and walk in the light of your word. Help us to take time to see your light in your world. We thank you so much, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Father's Day. You guys have a great week.